Life Church podcast with Pastor David Singer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for giving us Jesus, the big idea of your word, this, this great rescue story and this great rescuer. And we pray, Lord, today that we would see him more clearly. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would come now, Lord, and fill me, uh, fill this vessel, and use my mouth to declare your goodness, Lord, to declare the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Help me as I unpack this, uh, these scriptures about Joseph and help me to do it in a way that is pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, here we are, everybody, in week 45. I bet you never thought you'd see the day when you were a part of a 45-part sermon series in a church, but we have been in this series all year long, and we have seven weeks left to go. Um, In my mind, it's been fabulous. I've just loved every moment of it. Um, We're looking at Jesus' life, his teachings, his miracles, his parables, and now we're looking at the types of Christ. We're looking at Jesus because he is the foundation of the Christian faith. He's what our lives are built upon, and ultimately... This series on types and shadows, or this mini-series on types and shadows, has a big underlying purpose that we're trying to accomplish here. Um, Obviously, we want you to get a number of different things out of these talks, but our hope is that you will learn how to read your Bible in in the right way, in the appropriate way. Um, You're going to hear a lot of different things about the Bible as you go through life as a Christian. You'll see little slogans like, the Bible is your roadmap through life. Um, the Bible is helpful for, for telling us how to live our lives, but chiefly, primarily, that's not the purpose of the Bible, to give you a roadmap through life. Um, you'll hear things like, the Bible is a book of heroes. And um, we disagree with that here at Life Church. We don't think the Bible is a book of heroes. We think it's a book of one hero. And all the other people that are claimed to be heroes or that we sometimes view as heroes desperately need that one hero and point to that hero. You know, Pastor Bill talked a little bit about Abraham last week. He is the father of the faith. He's, he shows great faith. But he also, basically, if you read the story, pimped out his wife twice. And that's two times too many in my book. That's not a, good, that's not a hero. Um, uh, King David, you know, one of the greatest men in all the Bible, the, the man after God's own heart, the, the guy that we all look to and say, oh, King David. Well, he had the opposite problem of Abraham. He wasn't giving his wives away. He was taking other people's wives. And he took another guy's wife and slept with her and got her pregnant and then had her husband off so that he could try to cover it up. He's not a hero. He needs the hero. He needs Jesus. Um, The Apostle Paul wrote over half the New Testament. We love the Apostle Paul. But if you read the story, before he was busy preaching the gospel, he was busy killing people in the church and, and taking especially, imagine he come in here and take Elder Wendell and Elder Roy and Elder Paul and Elder Wade and say, you're coming with me, boys, and so are your families and I'm throwing you in jail and taking your lives. Not exactly a hero. These guys all have one thing in common, and that is they desperately need the one hero of the Bible, Jesus Christ. So we preach the Bible always about this one thing. It's all this giant epic rescue story, this this story that God has given in the book that he wrote about this great rescuer, this great protagonist, this main character of the Bible, and his name is Jesus. And who told us to preach the Bible this way? Who told us that it was about Jesus? Jesus did. Jesus did. Pastor Bill brought this up in week one. Um, If you look at Luke chapter 24, verse 27, you can read about the coolest Bible story or Bible study that ever took place. Um, I imagine that 
if I were a part of this Bible story, it would have just been the most exciting thing in the world. That It's like having your eyes opened. Um, you know, Pastor Bill mentioned that Jesus is just raised from the dead, and he's walking on the road to Emmaus with these two guys who don't recognize him. And then the guys are kind of bummed out. They're really bummed out. They're like, we had hoped that this guy was the promised one. And then Jesus says, well, wait a minute. And he says that in the beginning, or then, then it says in Luke 24, 27, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Jesus says, this is about me. He says, hey, wait a minute, guys. Look at this thing. Look at this story. Look at this person. Look at this event. This is really pointing to me. This, this whole thing says that this would happen. There were no New Testament scriptures at the time, so Jesus was just in the Old Testament, and really that's all we're doing in this series too. We're saying, look at this person in the Old Testament. Look at this thing. Look at this ritual. Look at this practice. This is really all pointing to Jesus. And when you read your Bibles, we want you to see that it's all about Jesus. It's all about creation, fall, rescue, and final redemption of all things. We want you to be able to to find where you're at in that narrative as you go through the scriptures. And so that's why we're doing this. Now, on that road to Emmaus, I would imagine that one of the stories that Jesus went to was in Genesis chapter 37 through 50, the story of Joseph. Um, I would imagine that Jesus said, now, look, guys, I know you know this story about Joseph, but I'm going to open your eyes a bit and show you that this is really about me. And so today, we're going to look at Joseph and how Joseph's life points to Jesus and why this matters for your life. Because ultimately, it has incredible significance for your life. Um, now, the story of Joseph is fabulous. My kids have loved this story uh, from day one. Uh, Hollywood got a hold of it. DreamWorks did a nice job with it, made it into a movie. It's called Joseph, King of Dreams. You can check it out for your kids. Actually, it does a really nice job. But this page-turner of a story covers about 13 chapters of Genesis, Genesis 37 through 50. And so if I were just to read the text like I normally like to do, I calculated it, it would take about the time of a decent sermon. So I'm not going to do that today. Um, I'm going to trust that you're going to go home and read Genesis 37 through 50 and test what I'm saying, as you should do every week. Test what I'm saying. See, does this really say what Pastor Dave is saying that it says? And um, I'm going to skip around a bit for the sake of time. Um, now, when I think of the story of Joseph and I think of big themes, obviously you can't miss the theme of forgiveness. Um, that's huge in the story of Joseph. Obviously, you can't miss the, the, the theme of suffering, and suffering in unjustly, suffering as an innocent person. Okay, so we're going to touch on that too. But when you lay the story of Joseph side by side the life of Christ, you can't miss the Christian hope. You can't miss this, this big idea of what every Christian hopes in. And so that's what I want to talk to you about for a few minutes today, this idea of Joseph, Jesus, and the Christian hope and how that relates to your life. So we'll be, I'm going to be doing a little bit of teaching today, too. And these sermons on types actually come across a little more teachy than preachy, but hopefully there's some deep application here for your life. Um, now, hope, as we define it, is simply just an expectation of future good. You look into the future and you see, things could go well for me, or at least I hope they will. I'm, I'm expecting things to go well for me in the future. That is Hope, and hope is not just important for Christians. So if you're here today and you're a non-Christian, I would say that hope is equally as important for you. Um, Hope, we are, as human beings, we are actually hope-dependent creatures. We're so utterly dependent on hope that our very lives depend upon it. And here's why we need hope so much. Um, There is no way to get through this life without figuring out how to get through suffering. 
Um, if there's one thing that's absolutely certain about your lives, that you're going to suffer in some way, um, whether that be physically or some sort of a loss. Um, even if it's just a pet, it's, it, there's suffering in this life. Okay? And we learn that from a very early, early age. Now, if there's no way to get through life without knowing how to get through suffering. There's no way to get through suffering unless you have hope, unless you have some sort of hope. And so hope is incredibly, incredibly important. We are um, hope-dependent creatures. Now, uh, this, something reminded me greatly of this point. I was reading um, the memoirs of Viktor Frankl this week. And I have a great interest in the Holocaust because my grandparents were actually in it. They were Dutch Christians who hid Jews. And uh, my grandmother was put in a, a concentration camp. But Viktor Frankl was uh, a Jewish psychoanalyst, psychotherapist, who was put in one of the worst uh, concentration camps out at Auschwitz. And he couldn't turn off his sort of doctor side of him. And so he's in there observing uh, people's responses to all this suffering. And his memoirs are absolutely stunning and fascinating and gripping and gut-wrenching. Um, but he tells of a lot of things about meaning and hope and, and what he observed in the prisoners. And listen to this. Um, he illustrates my point nicely here, how dependent we are on hope. He tells of one prisoner he knew who had a dream that the war would end on March 30th. So this guy comes to him and says, Doctor, I have this dream. And it's um, early February. And he says, uh, I dreamt that the war would end for me on March 30th. And Frankel observed him. And it says, as the, the war went on, and it became clearer and clearer as he approached his day, March 30th, it became clear that the war would not end by March 30th. And he said, curiously enough, on March 29th, the man began running a fever. On March 30th, he lost consciousness. And on March 31st, he was dead. Frankel observed that the loss of hope had lowered the man's body's resistance to the diseases of the camp, and he died. Additionally, he describes um, tragic scenarios when people lost hope as they realized the things that they had built their life foundation on their careers, their status, their families, their position in life, as they realized those things had been stripped from them never to return, many of them gave up. And he describes in just vivid detail. These people, he said, it would happen one morning that they would just refuse to get out of bed, refuse to go for inspection, and just wait the consequences that would follow, which was inevitably murder. When hope is gone, your life is gone. We are hope-dependent creatures. Frankl says that life in a concentration camp tears open the human soul and exposes its depths and foundations. Don't you see? The concentration camp, in a very short amount of time, ripped open these people's lives and showed what it was built upon. It showed what it was built upon. Because the found, your foundation for your life is what you're hoping in, what you're looking to in the future. That is your foundation. And the concentration camp, in just a matter of months, had a way of tearing open a person's soul and exposing that. And when that foundation was stripped from them because of the suffering, their hope was gone, and so was their lives. Ended. The big question that I want you to answer today as we go through our time together is, what is your life built upon? What's the foundation of your life? What's your hope? What are you living for? Frankel, in the end, said that many times as a doctor, he had people come to him and, and, and ask him questions. Doctor, how do I deal with this? I just can't, I can't make it another day. 
And he said it was, you know, he admits there were many days he just he couldn't give them any answer and he avoided all people because he was suffering so much himself. But he said in the end, this was kind of a summary of his counsel, he said that he told them that life only has meaning if we have a hope and a meaning that suffering and death cannot destroy. He says, we have to have something that goes beyond this. You have to have a hope that's not circumstantial. Otherwise, your hope is a circumstance. And what happens when you encounter suffering? Suffering is just the stripping of those things that you hoped in. It's just the taking away. It's just the removing of your foundation. So Franco is saying we need a foundation that, that, is not, that is not built upon any finite circumstance. It's got to be bigger than that. It's got to be outside of circumstance. And the good news is, if you're a Christian here today, the Apostle Peter tells us that we have that kind of a hope. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, where Peter says that Christians have this hope. He says that we have been given new birth into a living hope through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he goes on to say, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. You've been given this new and living hope by something, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that in the life of Joseph and in the life of Jesus today. You must have a hope in something that cannot be taken from you by suffering. You must. Otherwise, it's just not guaranteed. It can be taken at any moment. Then your life is over. Your hope is so important because it is the foundation upon which your life is built. And get this, it affects everything that you do today. It affects everything that you do right now. Let me give you a a practical example. If I were to take, um, let's say you don't have a job. And I come to you, I say, I have a job opportunity for you. It's 85 to 90 hours a week, um, but pretty grueling working conditions. And it's a five-year job, 85 to 90 hours a week, going to pay you 20 grand a year. Um, most of you wouldn't take that job, but if you took it, most of you wouldn't be able to endure it. You'd say, this is just too much. It's too, too many demands here. Um, but let's say I said, same thing, 85 to 90 hours a week, grueling working conditions, but it's going to five years but it's going to pay you $20 million a year. What's the difference in those two scenarios? It's future expectation. It's hope. You're going to say, what a breeze. I can do this. I can do this. I'm going to have $100 million after five years. That'll be the last day I ever work. I can easily do this. There's no problem. You can endure if you have some hope. Hope gives you the ability to endure. And that's what Frankel's saying, that's what the Apostle Peter's saying here, that we have got to have this hope that transcends, that goes beyond our circumstances. We've got to have this thing that cannot be stripped from us. And the story of Joseph points us to Christ, which points us to this living hope. So let's look at it today. Now, for time's sake, like I said, I can't go through Genesis 37 through 50. So what I'm going to do is kind of look at it like a mountain range and jump from peak to peak and sort of land uh, at the end. All right. Um, now, what we're going to do is we're going to map out Joseph's life. But before we do that, we're going to map out the life of Christ so that we can lay by it the life of Joseph. And then we're going to try to map out your life and show what is your end going to be? What is your living hope anyway? And how can you have this living hope that cannot be taken from you? Okay, so everybody ready? Does that sound good? Um, are we ready to do this? Um, now, I appreciate uh, Nathan and Christina's uh, discipleship class because it gives us a very simple way with the Apostles' Creed to map out the life of Christ. And it also helps those people who are artistically challenged um, because it uses letters from the alphabet. 
So we're just going to map out the life of Christ with a letter from the alphabet and the life of Joseph with a letter from the alphabet and then your life, all right? And I'm, I'm not one who's known for my art skills. I think we've determined I have about a seventh grade um, art ability. But here's Jesus' life. And we learn from the Creed as we confess this morning that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he has this amazing beginning to his life, really. It's a, it's a huge high point. He has an immaculate conception of virgin birth, which was prophesied hundreds of years before it happened. And he has this great starting point, which goes down quickly from there, according to the Creed. It says he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, was buried, and then he descended into hell, which is sort of like saying those last four things, he died, he died, he died, he died. Um, Because we need to get that through our minds that God came to earth as a man and died. And he really was dead. And he was really in a terrible spot here. He's in death, um, descended into hell, as the creed says. And then the creed goes on to confess what happened next. Just as quickly as he goes down, Jesus Christ goes up. It says the third day he rose again from the dead. God does the unthinkable, raises Jesus Christ from the dead. And then it says that he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So, amazing beginning, quick descent into the lowest of lows. He is dead. And then immediate ascension up to the right hand of power. The most powerful position, given the name that's above every name. He's exalted. He has this unbelievable turnaround. Now, Joseph's life is going to do this twice. Okay? So if you think of Joseph's life, just think of a W. All right? Now we're going to walk through the text um, and, and jump on some of these high points and see Joseph's life. And then we're going to look at your life. Okay? So beginning in Genesis chapter 30, verse 22, we read in the Bible that Joseph, like Jesus, has a miraculous conception. Um, now, Joseph's conception is not immaculate, meaning it was not the Holy Spirit. It was still his father Jacob. But Rachel was barren. His mother Rachel was barren, which in that day was like a judgment, a huge sentence on your life. And so this is like a mini shadowing of resurrection because there was no life in her womb and God brings life where there was no life. And so Joseph is a miracle child. He comes into the world in the most celebrated of ways, sort of like Jesus. Jesus had kings and stuff gathered around him as as being born. Greatly celebrated birth. Joseph is a miracle child. They never thought Rachel would have kids. Joseph is this miracle child, this, this, this child that they never thought they would have. And uh, it says, to add to that, uh, in Genesis chapter 37, verse 3, like Jesus, Joseph is the beloved son of his father. He's the beloved son of his father. In fact, he's so loved that it becomes a problem. Jacob loves Joseph more than his other kids, more than his other sons, it tells us. And in chapter 37, verse 4, it says that because of Jacob's favoritism, Joseph was hated by his brothers. Now, how many of you were the favorite child? Just be honest. Okay? (laughs) You're the favorite child, and you know it. And all of your siblings hated you for it. How many of you had a sibling um, that was the favorite child? Okay? And you knew it. Parents, this this is a strong reminder. When you read things in the scriptures like this, where the Bible doesn't make a comment on it, but clearly everything goes bad, like polygamy, you just know this is a bad idea to play favorites, okay? Um, so we learn clearly from the narrative here that as parents, you do not play favorites with your children, all right? 
But Jacob did play favorites, and to make matters worse, Joseph starts having dreams, okay? And um, these are not ordinary dreams. They're, they're uh, unusual dreams, and he says, to, he makes the mistake of telling his brothers, he says, guys, I've been having these dreams, and oddly enough, you're bowing down to me, and I'm ruling over you, and even mom and dad are in them sometimes, and you're all bowing down to me. And how many of you are an oldest child or an older child, okay? How many of you the baby, and uh, every, the whole world revolves around you? This is, this is a youngest child's dream right here, okay? Yes, the whole world should revolve around me. Mom and dad and my brothers and sisters should do everything I ask. But I was a middle child, and my brother Dan suffered a lot. And this is part of my, my repentance here. Um, <laughs> Dan, Dan was my project in life, okay? And so everything that Dan needed to know, I was in charge of, of helping him know. And every time Dan got off track, I was, I, was, I was responsible for putting him back on the path and saying, Dan, no, that's not the way we're going to do things, and, and squashing him with power anytime he needed it. And so if Dan, you know, I'm, I'm really sympathetic to these older brothers because if Dan, you know, would have come to me and said, Dave, you know, I've been having these dreams, and ironically enough, in it, I'm laying on a hammock in a beach under a tree, and you're, you're wearing a robe, and you're bringing me all kinds of nice cold drinks and, and serving me food. And I think this is the way that God says it's going to turn out. I would have been like, okay, th- that would have resulted in a headlock, a noogie, maybe a typewriter. If you don't know what those things are, you probably never had abusive siblings. But that's the way it would have gone in our house. Okay, uh, It would not have gone well for Dan. So Joseph makes this big mistake telling the brothers about his dream, and that results in even more hatred. Um, Genesis chapter 37, verse 8 says, his brothers look at him and say, are you indeed to reign over us? Like, are you for real, man? Like, what are you thinking here? They say, are you going to have dominion over us, Joseph? Like, what's up with you? Interestingly enough, Jesus was also hated by his brothers, the Jews. And although they longed for a king, they longed for a king like David to come in and rescue them from the Roman Empire. Um, They did not want a king like Jesus, who was insistent on doing it a different way. And so both Joseph and Jesus are hated by their brothers and rejected as rulers over their brothers. Now, how many of you can relate to Joseph and Jesus here Um, you've experienced some sort of hatred by your family. I mean, we laugh about it here, but but this is a deep, deep pain, to be hated by family members. If you've known this pain, you know you've got to have a living hope in the midst of it to endure it. It's very difficult to be hated by your own flesh and blood. Those who are supposed to love you the most unconditionally, when they hate you, it's very, very difficult. Very difficult. Now, for Joseph, it only got worse. Like Jesus, Joseph was sent by his father to his brothers. Also like Jesus, Joseph's brothers plotted to kill him. So you can see their hatred isn't just sort of nonchalant. They're serious about this hatred. Um, Like Jesus, Joseph was stripped of his robe. And like Jesus, Joseph is thrown into a pit and left for dead. He goes down quickly. We see how it just, it's a mirror image of Jesus' descent into death. It's interesting here. This word for cistern here, or pit, is the Hebrew word bore, which is another way of saying death. He's as good as dead here. Um, Now, it's been a miracle, actually, that his brothers didn't kill him outright. One of his brothers talked him out of that and said, hey, let's not lay a hand on him. Let's just throw him in this pit. And then... In an unusual turn of events, which you might not think is positive, um, 
Joseph comes out of the pit, not for um, benevolent reasons, not because his brothers had a change of heart, but because they had a change of business strategy. They said, hey, this isn't a wise financial decision, guys. Joseph is a healthy young man. Besides, he's never done a day of work in his life. So let's put him to work and let's make some money off of him. So like Jesus, Joseph was betrayed and sold for pieces of silver. Like I say, this has to go in the positive direction because it's better than death. And he does come up out of the pit. All right? Um, but it's not a very positive thing. He's still almost as good as dead. His, his life is still at the bottom. But Joseph is betrayed like Jesus. How many of you have been betrayed before? Um, there's not many pains in life like betrayal. Um, and our world is full of it. You just go to the grocery store and look at the magazine rack, and everybody, there's all kinds of stories about betrayal and embezzlement and people sneaking around and, and doing things. This is a deep pain. In order to get through the pain of betrayal in life, you're going to have to have a living hope. You're going to have to have something that transcends, something that goes beyond your relationships. Don't hope in your relationships. They will let you down. Inevitably, all of us hurt each other at some point. Joseph was betrayed, and so was Jesus. But the Bible says in Genesis chapter 39, verse 2, something remarkably wonderful. In spite of all these terrible things happening to Joseph, it says the Lord was with Joseph, which is one of the most positive things you can say in the Hebrew culture. The Lord was still with Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt to Potiphar, who is, a, is a, an officer of Pharaoh, and the Lord blessed everything that Joseph did. Uh, it became evident to Potiphar that, that he said, God is with this guy, Joseph. And, and actually, after a while, Potiphar said, I have no concern about anything in my household because I just know Joseph's got it. He's got it under control. So Joseph quickly rises in Potiphar's house to the right hand of power. Okay, remember how Jesus was risen to the right hand of power? Joseph, in a much smaller way, in Potiphar's house, is the right-hand man. There's nobody in greater authority in Potiphar's house than Joseph himself. And just when we think it's only going to keep going up from there, just when we think finally the innocent one is going to be repaid good for all the evil he suffered, an accusation comes. An accusation is brought against him. Potiphar's wife, see, had an issue. Um, and since we're in church, we'll call it monogamously challenged. Okay? <laughs> Um, she found Joseph very attractive. And um, she, the Bible says it wasn't just one time, but she was working on him. She was saying, come, sleep with me. And Joseph wouldn't do it. He wouldn't give in. He's, he, he said, I'm not going to do this evil thing. I'm not going to betray my master. He wouldn't do this evil thing in the sight of the Lord. So you would expect to read that from there, Joseph's life was just catapulted in the right direction. But not so. She one day got extra frisky, grabs him by the coat, and Joseph does what all of us should do in the face of imminent temptation. He runs. He takes off his coat and bolts. She gets mad and says, well, I wonder how this would look if I screamed right now. Now you have woman holding slave's coat, slave running, woman screaming. Who looks guilty here? Joseph. He's framed. She says, He came in, tried to rape me. I screamed, and he ran. Like Jesus, Joseph was wrongly accused. How many of you have suffered for being wrongly accused of something? Personally, I think this is one of the most annoying 
terrifying things um, because there's no way to go and print a retraction all the time. You know, there's no way to go back and clear everything that's been said about you. Um, how many of you had somebody slander you and, you, and the whole time you were just trying to do what was upright and, and good and what was good for people, and then it came out looking like you had done the worst kind of thing. You were wrongly accused. Jesus knew what that was like. In order to get through those kinds of things, I would say you've got to have a living hope. Even if your hope is in your good reputation, just because you're good doesn't mean that has to stay. It can be taken from you, even though your actions are right and upright. Potiphar believed his wife, and we see the dramatic descent of Joseph right back down into the pit. Now, there is a small miracle here that we often overlook. Joseph was not executed. A slave who tries to rape his master's wife was normally executed. Um, That would be the normal protocol here. But something in Potiphar said, I'm not going to kill Joseph. I'm just going to throw him in prison. Now, this word prison or dungeon um, is the same word, ironically, as for the cistern. So this is bore in Hebrew or death. Joseph is down in death again for the second time, just like Jesus went down into death. And then we read, Joseph is as good as dead, but the Bible says something very encouraging. Again, Genesis chapter 39, verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord is with Joseph. A remarkable, positive turn. And, and, and it's a bit confusing because you're like, well, how come all this bad stuff is continuing to happen to him if the Lord is with him? But we have to wait and read the end of the story. Again, God gave Joseph favor in all that he did in the prison. He became second in command again in the prison. He, again, he ri- rises to the right hand of power in the prison. The, the, the keeper of the prison says, I have no concern for anything in the prison because Joseph's got it. Joseph, is, he's got it under control. I trust him with everything. And so even as a prisoner, Joseph rises to power in the prison. And then one day, Pharaoh gets angry at his cupbearer and his baker, tosses him into prison, and they both have dreams. Joseph gives them the interpretation to the dreams. He says, Baker, it's not good news for you. You're going to be hanged. Cupbearer, you're going to be restored to your position. Please remember me. I don't deserve to be in here. I didn't do anything. And the cupbearer's like, oh, yeah, no problem, dude. And, uh, of course, the cupbearer gets out and has a severe case of amnesia. For about two years, he forgets about Joseph. And I'm like, maybe that's why the Pharaoh threw him in there in the first place. He's so darn forgetful. You know, uh, I mean, because how do you forget about something like this for two years? Hey, wait a minute. You know, you just think that as you were doing your job, you'd be like, boy, I'm really glad Pharaoh didn't kill me like he killed the baker. And, oh, yeah, I remember my time in prison. Oh, yeah, that Joseph. Oh, I was supposed to tell the king about that guy. How would this not occur to him over two years? I don't know. But he forgets about Joseph. How many of you have felt forgotten about? You've done something nice for somebody. You've cared about somebody in their moment of need. You've looked after them. You've gone out of your way to to make sure that they were um, taken care of. And then when your moment of need came, they were nowhere to be found. Um, It's like they've forgotten all about you. How many of you experienced that? Jesus experienced that. I mean, think of him in the Garden of Gethsemane where he just asked his disciples, can you please pray for me? I'm in in my time of need. I I need you to be up with me and pray for me. He comes back and they're sleeping. You know, he must have just felt so alone, like, been with you all this time. You can't pray with me for an hour? You can't just give me an hour? You know, drink a Red Bull or something and stay up with me, guys, you know? Jesus experienced it. 
And so did Joseph. And you need a living hope to get through things like that, friends. Now, of course, the Pharaoh has a dream, and it's a dream from God, and none of the wise men can interpret the dream. And so then it dawns on the stupid cupbearer. Oh, yes, remember that guy in prison? He told me my dream. I wonder if he could tell you your dream. Do you think? So they go and get Joseph out, and Joseph, of course, under the power of God, tells the Pharaoh exactly what his dream means, and that he needs to store up all this grain because there's this huge famine coming. And Pharaoh says, I got an idea. How about you be the guy? You, and, and Joseph rises out of the pit of death to the right hand of power, becomes one of the most powerful men in all the world now at the right hand of power in Egypt. Like Jesus, Joseph is again raised to the right hand of power. And now, just like Jesus, all the world must come to Joseph to live. All the world must come to him to live. All the world must come to him for the bre- He's like the bread of life, okay? Um, because he's the only one with grain. The whole world is going to be starving in famine, and Joseph's the only guy that has the keys to food. The story gets really interesting because the famine hits Canaan as well, and Joseph's brothers are in need. They're, they hear that, hey, there's grain in Egypt, so let's go to Egypt and, and let's see if we can buy some grain. And then we, as we're reading this, if you're reading this for the first time, you're thinking, oh, man, those brothers are going to get it. Oh, man, this is, not, this is going to go bad for them. And, and what's Joseph going to do? I wonder if he's going to dig like 10 little pits for all of them and put them in there and say, how do you like it? And, or make them servants in the worst kind of way or put them in prison. How is he going to get back at them? What's he going to do? Now that he has all this authority, he can do whatever he wants other than overtake Pharaoh himself. His, his word is law in the land. He can do whatever he wants. How is he going to use this power and authority? How is he going to repay those who have betrayed him and hated him? Genesis 45, verse 7 tells us that after Joseph tested his brothers, he revealed himself to them and told them not to be afraid. He told them, God sent me before you to preserve life. See, Joseph was raised up to the right hand of power to forgive his enemies, to forgive people who betrayed him, and to preserve life. Like Joseph, Jesus was also exalted to the right hand of power. We map that out here. And Philippians 2 uh, tells us that. It says that um, the name of Jesus, or that Jesus has been given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. It's saying there's no name that's higher than this guy. Jesus' name is above every name. He has all the authority. And then we get a little scared, like, hey, we're the ones that have sinned and betrayed him and beat him and mocked him and put him on a tree. What's he going to do with his power and authority? Well, like Joseph, Jesus uses all his power and authority to forgive sins, to forgive his enemies, and to preserve life. It's what he does with it. Praise God. It's how Jesus uses his power and authority. He uses it like Joseph did. In the end, Joseph tells his brothers this. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. This is sort of like the summit, the peak of the whole passage. In the end, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Of course, this perfectly describes to us Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that what Satan and and many of the Jews and the Romans were planning for evil to, to commit this great evil against the most innocent man who ever lived. God is sitting there planning and scheming and saying, through this, what they think is evil, I'm bringing about the greatest good that the world has ever known. 
I'm bringing about the greatest good from the greatest evil. So now, let's look at your life. What's your life going to look like? Now, if we look at Joseph's life and Jesus' life, we know there's going to be some variation in the beginning. All right? Um, and if we would have really mapped out in detail and taken a lot of time, Joseph's life would have had a lot of ups and downs. It would have looked more like a heart monitor. You know, like it starts up and then maybe it goes down and up and back down and then maybe it flatlines for a little bit and then back up and down and flat and, and maybe there's a little time up here and down here. And, but here's the thing. What we know from Joseph's life and how God was with him, what we know for you as a Christian, because you are in Christ and God is with you, is that your life cannot be the letter M. It can't end in death in the bottom. It can't end in the pit. That's what we know about your life. No matter what happens, all the ups and downs, the betrayals and the struggles and the trials and the the things that are nasty and difficult in this life, we know that it cannot end on a down note. It's almost like Joseph has the buoyant force working on him, the opposite of gravity. It's like whatever goes down must come up if God is with you. It cannot keep you down. You just can't keep this guy Joseph down. His hope was in God, and God just keeps bringing him up. doesn't matter how many times he goes down. If the story would have kept going, we would just see more downs and more right back up. And God is just going to keep bringing you up. Now, here's the thing. God brought Joseph's life up from the pit again and again and again, but he was not literally dead. Okay? Now, this is just a foreshadow. This is just a type of Christ. This is pointing to Jesus Christ who actually died and who was actually raised from the dead never to die again. That's what Joseph is pointing to, and that's the Christian hope. Now, Jesus Christ is called in the scriptures the firstborn from the dead. And what does that mean? That sound, we don't use that. We don't put a lot of emphasis on firstborn and lastborn and those kinds of things anymore, but firstborn just meant that there are going to be many, 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 many more after that who follow in the same way what Jesus did. So, when Jesus is called the firstborn, that means all who put their faith and their hope and their trust in him, their life is going to follow the exact same path that Joseph's did and the exact same path that his did. That no matter how many times you go down, it's coming up in the end. Your life is going to end coming up. Because the same God who pulled Joseph out of the pit time and time again is the same God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead And that same God promises when you are in him, you also will be raised. You also will be raised. Let's look at the creed and how your story ends. This is what the early church was confessing, even as we confessed it this morning. They were saying, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. That's not talking about popes and priests and bishops. It's talking about the church universal. I believe in the communion of saints, the gathering of of the Christians. And it says, then I believe in the forgiveness of sins. So we say, because Jesus died on the cross in our place as our substitute and then rose again from the dead conquering sin, that our sins can be forgiven because he has authority to do that. He has authority to forgive your sins. So the church is confessing, hey, no matter how bad it gets, my sins are forgiven. That's step one. That's a big upswing. And then they go on to confess "Ah, the resurrection of the flesh. Even if they kill me, even if I'm thrown to the beasts in that early Roman culture, very possible even if I'm beheaded, even if they take my life, even if the last enemy, death, I run into the last enemy, which the Bible calls death the last enemy. Even if death takes me, it doesn't matter because God's just going to raise me right back up. God's going to raise me from the dead. So I'm confessing the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, and the life everlasting. That your 
physical body is raised from the dead in the end to a new life, a new physical life on an earth much like this one that resembles this earth that has where we hug and where we laugh and where we dance and where we celebrate and we feast together and where God is with us, where we can see God, where Jesus Christ comes and reigns as the king and puts everything right and removes all the suffering and all the evil and makes it just a a dim memory, a faint memory. And he says, I'm going to wipe away every tear from your eye. And I'm going to uh, make it so there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain. I'm going to put everything right. The resurrection of the flesh and the life everlasting on that new earth with the new heavens, with a new king who is always good and perfectly just. That's what your hope is, friends. That's your living hope. That's the thing that no matter how many betrayals you go through, no matter how many times people hate you, no matter how much your name is slandered and how much everything in your life seems to fall apart, that is the hope that can never be stripped from you. It can never be taken from you. Can you see now why Peter says, you have been given a living hope. You've been given a living hope because our God is living. He was raised from the dead, never to die again, and he promises that very same thing. To you, he says, you will live again. Your life is not going to end in the pit because Jesus Christ's life did not end in the pit and his resurrection guarantees that when you are in him, he's going to do the same thing with you. Can you see why the early church in the midst of such suffering and pain and persecution had such unflappable peace? They had this, it's just uncanny to read about it. They had this Um, unsinkable buoyancy about them. You just push them down and they pop right back up. It's like a rubber ducky in the bathtub. You just push it down and it pops right back up. They just can't be put down for good. That's because God was with them and they were in Jesus Christ and their hope was not a circumstance. It was not a circumstance. It was beyond circumstance of life. It was in something that could never be stripped from them. It was in the resurrection of the flesh and the life everlasting on the new earth. And it gave them hope, gave them courage, gave them joy in the midst of suffering. It's the weird thing about Christians. We can be simultaneously very, very sad and joyful at the same time. It's really messed up. But it happens because of this. Because your hope is not a circumstance. So you can grieve and mourn in reality and still have something that transcends all of that. Still has something that goes beyond all that that says, in the end, I will rise and God will put everything right. In the end, I will live on a new earth, a new physical earth, where we laugh and we celebrate, and this is just a dim memory, all the suffering. It says that this life, here and now, is as bad as it could possibly get. And doesn't that give you a little bit of hope to endure? Doesn't that say, I can press on. I can live for God now. Because he's going to make everything right. I can live now, today, differently because of this new hope. I ask you today, friends, what is your hope in? What have you built your life upon? What's the foundation of your life? I pray it's not in your retirement. Um, I was looking at a magazine yesterday, and uh, Northwestern Mutual, bless their hearts, um, has an ad that says, how would you like to have the feeling of financial invincibility back? And I'm not against Northwestern Mutual. But financial invincibility is a myth. You cannot be financially invincible. And even if you think you are, that's one small type of invincibility. What what are you going to do when you get cancer? Well, 
so much for financial invincibility. You know, what are you going to do when your loved one passes away? Don't put your hope in something silly like that. You know, don't put your hope in family. Uh, I mean, as much as um, marriage is a good thing, you can just look at your wedding pictures from 10, 20 years ago and see that you are fading at the very least. Um, so, so that too is going to fade. That too is going to pass away. Don't put your hope in that, that thing. Don't put your hope in your kids. They're wonderful. They're blessings. They're from God. Some of us hope in our children. It's the greatest suffering that I can imagine is losing one of them. But we must not hope in them. Our hope cannot be in that circumstance. Don't hope in getting married someday, you singles. Um, don't hope in, in some sort of uh, career success, graduating, um, something, something out there that you're looking forward to. It's okay to long for that thing and to, and to say, oh, that would be fun if I can do that. But don't make that your ultimate thing, your ultimate hope upon which your life is built upon. I mean, you have to ask yourself, what is it that if this thing was stripped away from me, would life not have any point in, in any meaning? Would it, it would not have any, would I, have, I wouldn't have any juice to go on if that was taken away from me. Your health, none of these things are guaranteed to us. This is guaranteed. Because Jesus Christ, the risen one, has guaranteed that to you. That he will raise you from death. God will raise you from death. And will bring you into a brand new kingdom, much like this one, only free from all the things that we hate. I pray, friends, that you would put your hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into the life everlasting. Put it into the only thing that is living and lasting. Because then whatever happens in this life, no matter how many ups and downs it has, your life is only going up from here. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Joseph. We thank you for this encouragement, Lord, to place our hope in what lasts. Not in the things that are temporary. Not in the things that are finite. Not in the things that suffering and death can strip from us but in the one thing that death and suffering can never take from us, and that is our hope in you and in the life that you promise us to come. We thank you, Jesus, that you have conquered death for us, that um, you have made our last enemy um, very weak indeed. And now we as Christians even speak of death as sleep as we await the resurrection from the dead. Um, We pray, Lord, that this truth would dive deep into our hearts and that it would begin to sprout up in the form of hope. Um, We pray that this hope would give us joy along the way, that it would give us peace knowing that you've got us in your hands, that it would give us an unbeatable, um, unflappable sense of resilience, Lord, in the midst of trials and tribulations. I know some of us in here today are suffering so greatly, Lord. Would you help them today? Father, would you help them and speak hope to them in the resurrection and the new life to come? It's in Christ's good name that we pray. Amen.